0: Hey there, welcome to Arsenal On Air, your primary source to arm yourself with the information to lead a healthy, productive, prosperous, and informed life in the 21st century. Today's episode is an absolute banger. I think you're going to all enjoy it a lot. But before I get into who it is that I have on today, I did want to make a brief correction to a previous episode. In Broadcast 003 with Reese Lindmark, Reese and I are talking about the evolution of the broadcast model from the few to the many, to the many to the many. And in doing so, I was talking about the broadcast models available in the 20th century, and I referenced Roosevelt's fireside chats, where Franklin D. Roosevelt addressed the nation through radio about the happenings of the nation and the presidency. But what I had actually said in the episode was Eisenhower's fireside chats, and that's just incorrect. It's super minor, I know, no one probably noticed it besides Reese and myself, but I think it's an important correction, nonetheless, to avoid any confusion. So, with that out of the way, on today's episode, I'm excited to have on an evolutionary psychologist and anthropologist, Dr. Michelle Scalise Sugiyama. Her work specializes in symbolic and aesthetic behavior, with an emphasis on storytelling, art, and play. Her work investigates the origins of these behaviors, specifically the selection pressures that led to their emergence, the role they played in ancestral human societies, and the design features of the mind that made them possible. We actually get to touch on all aspects of her work, in addition to and not limited to what makes human beings different from other animals, what the social intelligence hypothesis is, and how it aided our development, how podcasts might be the new Gutenberg revolution, as well as our new campfires, and the ramifications of our newest technology on ourselves and our society. It's a really great episode, so make sure to like it, share it, leave some feedback on YouTube or Instagram, subscribe, and above all, enjoy. Michelle welcome to the show.
1: Thank you glad to be here.
0: I'm so excited to have you on because uh, basically I took your class over the summer and I thought it was really insightful especially considering what uh, I wanted to do with this podcast in its beginning stages was kind of outline for us where we are in the information age because I think it's kind of overwhelming with all the stuff that we're introduced to and give taking your class it really Gave me some perspective to that.
1: Oh, I'm, that's I'm glad to hear that. That's um, very rewarding for a teacher. You know, that's the, that's our biggest reward <laughs> is when <laughs> someone is stoked by what, what we teach.
0: Yeah, it was it was incredibly insightful. So, when did when did you start? What gave you the inclination to study anthropology and, and human origins?
1: Well, I started off in grad school in a literature program, and um, I got really frustrated with uh, what they were calling literary theory at the time because it really wasn't theory um and uh so my husband was in an anthropology program at the same time and so I kind of started talking to him about he was studying evolutionary psychology and so I started talking to him about that and it seemed to me that that was applicable to the study of literature um of course other Psychological theories have been applied in the past: Freudian theory, Union theory, um, and so it was very logical to apply psychological theory. And so I just got really interested in it, started sitting in on classes, and um, started um, approaching people in psych about storytelling because nobody was looking at storytelling then. Um, and but it's a universal human behavior; uh, develops naturally. We don't have to be taught how to understand stories or even how to tell stories. Um, not talking about good stories, um, but just storytelling in general. Um, and so my uh, various professors encouraged me to, uh, you know, keep exploring that. And, um, and so I did, and then that led me to other forms of symbolic behavior. Although most of my work is focused on storytelling. I also look at things like play games um, and song and ritual um, and visual art, body decoration, things like that. Um, so that's how it all started.
0: Really interesting. So, you kind of took what you were studying before and saw how that could lay over with anthropology, basically, and see that you putting all that together. It sounds like analyzing sto- storytelling wasn't really that big when you started. So,
1: um, well, not from an evolutionary perspective right, or okay. a scientific biological perspective. No, it was actually anathema. People, I had people reacted against it. It took me forever to put together a dissertation committee um, (laughs) because people were really hostile um, to evolutionary theory, to biology, biological approaches. um, There's this view in the humanities that um, scientific study is reductionistic. Um, And so um, so that was kind of a a rough period, Uh, but I persisted. Um, anyways, in, in early, the early days of anthropology, there was a big interest in storytelling, uh, in folklore. Um, and that's one of the things that early anthropologists collected. Thank goodness they, they collected stories. Um, so we have a record of them. Um, and so the, it, it wasn't unprecedented, you know, the study of storytelling in anthropology. It was a very much more friendly um, environment for studying storytelling from an evolutionary perspective. Um, So I kind of defected to anthropology from literature, even though I got my degree in literature. Um, I also simultaneously got training in anthropology and evolutionary psychology. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. I was at UC Santa Barbara when John Tooby and Lita Cosmides were hired. And they're like the pioneers of evolutionary psychology. And so um, my husband and I were their first grad students. And um, And so I just got really lucky. And, um, you know, right away when I talked to John about, you know, folklore storytelling, he was like, oh, yeah, that totally makes sense to study that, you know, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, And he didn't have a whole lot of ideas because they never really thought about it. (laughs) But he encouraged me and and he gave me some some tips. Um, One of the most important things he said to me was, think about it in terms of the storyteller and the audience. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, that's brilliant. You know, it's, it's an interaction, it's an exchange, it's, it's a social activity, right? Um, it takes at least two people for storytelling to happen. Um, and so what's going on in that interaction? Um, so that's kind of where I started.
0: Wow that's amazing so it's it's almost like the, the resistance paid off you know and that's almost like an, that's almost an indication that you were on the right path right if you're encountering this resistance as to like a new way to analyze that field yeah that,
1: that, yeah, that's a good sign right if people, if people
0: don't like what you're doing maybe you're doing the right thing yeah it might be groundbreaking yeah um I actually think that's a great segue into uh you know what is it that makes human beings special like, why are we, I mean, there's a few different things that make us different from animals, our forebrains and um, a few, our ability to make tools, but, but what is it specifically in, in your work that makes human beings different?
1: Yeah, I would say different, not special. Um, and of course we're animals like other animals. And so from an evolutionary perspective, humans are a species, right? We're an animal species. Um, and so the question is, what is it? What are the capabilities the capacities that distinguish us zoologically from other species. Um, and so one of the things um, that distinguishes us is the ability to tell stories. Um, so when I first started investigating the subject, I was exploring the possibility that storytelling is an adaptation um, because it's universal. It's um, what um, evolutionary psychologists call reliably developing. Um, it's like language, we, just, we acquire this ability. We don't have to be taught, actively taught um, it's just something that develops. Um, so, it, you know, for various reasons, it looked like it might be an adaptation. Now, I don't think it's an adaptation. Um, I think that there, it's um, basically a byproduct of various adaptations that we have. Um, the only thing that I think might be an adaptation is narrative, um, which I think is a representational format. It's a, it's a way of representing experience, um, events, um, so, th- so that could be an adaptation, uh, but um, but the actual the, the act of storytelling, exchanging stories with other people, um, that's I think a byproduct of cooperation and language and various other faculties. But um, but we're a highly cooperative species, and um, one of the things we share with others is information, and stories are information. Um, so um, so uh, so among these abilities that we have. Um, that distinguish us from other species are um, language would be the most obvious one, Um, but also um, the the ability to reason counterfactually, um, which makes fiction possible, fictional stories, um, and other fictions. Um, Art is a fiction, right? A painting is a fiction. It's not the real thing. Um, A statue is a fiction. Um, Games are fictions Um, and story, you know, game worlds uh, like in video games. Those are fictions. And then um, another important capacity is theory of mind, the ability to um, understand that other humans have minds and the implications that follow from that. They have thoughts and feelings and beliefs and uh, they can forget, they can remember, um, they can be confused, uh, they can wonder. Um, So um, so the ability to understand that other humans have mental states, uh, to make predictions about their mental states, to to make inferences about their mental states. Um, What are they thinking? What are they feeling? And and use various cues to make inferences about what people are thinking and feeling like their body language, their facial expression. Um, So in storytelling theory of mind comes into play in a number of ways. Um, In order to understand characters, you have to have theory of mind, right, because we attribute minds to characters, even though they're often fictional. Um, We assume that, you know, if they're human. They can think, they can feel, they can believe, they can forget, they can dream. Um, and we make um, predictions about how the characters are going to behave or we understand, we interpret their behavior based on our understanding of their mental states. Oh, she did that because she's jealous or, oh, he did that because he's angry. Um, and so without theory of mind, um, characters in stories wouldn't make sense to us. They'd be no different from you know trees and rocks and chairs. Right? We, um, we wouldn't understand that they could have goals and they could act on those goals. Um, and then, of course, theory of mind comes into play in the act of storytelling itself. Um, when you tell a story to someone, you assume that they have a mind and that you know, they can attend to the story. They can understand the story. They can remember the story. Um, so those are just some of the abilities that we have. Um, it's not that other animals don't have um, these abilities. Other animals communicate. Other animals um, have, they can make some inferences about what other animals are going to do, Um, but these abilities seem to be more highly developed in humans um, than they are in other animals. And then um, our ability to reason counterfactually also enables us to invent things um, such as tools. Um, and um, and that in turn um, is highly dependent on our ability to extract information from the environment. Um, we need information in order to solve problems by, you know, making tools or uh, developing strategies such as tracking to find animals. Um, and, um, and this is something that really distinguishes humans from other species is this highly developed ability to extract information from the environment and then apply that information um, through tactics and and um, making tools and modifying our environment in really complex ways. Um, so um, so those are some of the big ones um, that distinguish us from other animals.
0: Right. And so how old is is storytelling and what what were some of the early forms of media that we used to, to uh, portray those stories, right? Because that's something, whereas certain species can still exchange certain information and make predictions about other behavior, we have a really unique ability to encode that information um, and and pass it down, right? So so, yeah, exactly. So how old is it and what were some of the early forms? Um,
1: Well, I argue that storytelling was um, one of the earliest um, information technologies. Um, How old is it? We can't say for sure, but there are various lines of evidence that we can use to estimate how old it is. Um, First of all, we know that um, hunter-gatherers and and other pre-literate societies um, have very rich storytelling traditions. So that tells us you don't need writing to have um, stories um, and and very beautifully crafted, very complex stories. Um, So hunter-gatherers have incredibly rich, complex oral traditions. Um, So that tells us that, um, you know, storytelling probably began orally, you know, writing was invented about 5000 years ago, um, and it wasn't initially used to tell stories. It was used for accounting. Um, But um, (laughs) uh, and so oral storytelling persisted. um, Well, you know, up to the invention of the printing press and even after that, because um, even with the invention of the printing press, uh, most people weren't literate. Right. And so most storytelling continued to be oral, um, probably into the 20, you know, early 20th century. Um, and uh, so, so storytelling was originally performed. It was oral. Um, and it was, um, I think it was probably more similar to drama and stand-up comedy than it is to um, you know, books or experience of reading stories. Uh, people performed the stories. And of course, some people were better than others. Um, but it was, um, you know, the, the person telling the story would act out the different character voices, um, would act out their actions. Um, they would use their voice, um, to create mood, um, you know, to, if it was a scary part in the story, they might modify their voice, um, you know, or maybe lower their voice to a whisper to communicate, um, you know, fear and anxiety and tension. Um, so it was, it was very much of a performance, um, judging from hunter gatherer societies, um and then we, uh, we another line of evidence is language because it's really hard to tell a story without language. Um, we use um, other things um, in verbal storytelling um, to supplement the language um, for example, um, gestures and uh, modifying our voice um, and then of course in modern environments we have film, right so we have um, you know images and music um Well, that's another thing in in hunter gatherer societies, a lot of times, um, part um, or all of the story is um, sung or chanted. Um, So there's kind of a musical component. Um, But, um, but language is absolutely integral to communicating the nuances of the story. And so, um, so it's unlikely that there was a whole lot of storytelling before language evolved. And we know that language um, almost certainly evolved before um, humans migrated out of Africa. Um, So, um, and there's evidence dating, you know, that suggests that it began evolving like 2 million years ago. Um, And uh, not, not, it it wouldn't have been in its, you know, it wouldn't have been in its full fruition. Um, It would have been rudimentary back then. Um, But anyways, very, very ancient. Um, Certainly um, was present um, in our species before humans migrated, um, you know, to other continents. because. The logic behind this argument is um, that if it hadn't evolved by then, um, it would have had to evolve independently in, um, you know, multiple human groups scattered around the world. And the chances of that happening are basically zero. Um, So um, so language, when when I say language, I mean the capacity for speech, right? not modern languages. Um, uh, So so that suggests that storytelling could have emerged tens of thousands of years ago. And then another line of evidence we have is symbolic behavior, other other forms of symbolic behavior besides language, such as art um, and and music um, and and dance and things like that. Um, And the earliest evidence, the earliest really solid evidence of art behavior dates to about 75,000 years ago. Um, And this is um, some shell beads um, that were um, clearly strung on a necklace and uh, pieces of engraved ochre that were found in Blombos Cave in South Africa. Um, And the various artifacts are dated from about 75,000 to I think like 100 and maybe 120,000 years ago, something like that. Um, But um, so the reason these suggest symbolic behavior is that the the marks on the ochre are very regular and patterned. So that suggests that they communicate something, um, they mean something. They're not just random you know, scratches on a, on a piece of rock. Um, and then uh, beads are evidence of symbolic behavior because jewelry is often symbolic. It often means something, it communicates information about the person, uh, their marital status or their ethnic affiliation or um, maybe their religious um, beliefs. Um, so jewelry is often symbolic. Um, so 75,000 years ago, so you put all these different lines of evidence together and it suggests that storytelling um, is tens of thousands of, of years um, old, um, and it could be much older than that.
0: So it's it's, it's really interesting to me because uh, basically, so it's it's very old. It's 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 as it's 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 as old as our ability to speak, essentially, right? And then could be
1: could be we don't could know be. But it could be.
0: So so that being said, it's deeply embedded in our, in our in our brain and in our psychology to extract information from song, from art, from story. And I find that, I find that interesting because, you know, it's, it's much easier to remember a certain sequence of events. If it's told in the narrative format or you see it in, in artwork versus here's the facts, you know, like this is like, remember this, you know, you go around that tree over there and you'll find where the herds are. Right. But and if it's like, if you apply a story around it, it's going to be much easier to remember that. And that, that's, that's essentially an outcome of having done this, that's potentially an outcome for having done this for so long, right?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I, I think one of the things that storytelling does, what makes it more memorable than, you know, as you were saying, just straight facts. I mean, there are studies that show that, actually, that um, psychological studies that show that humans remember information much better when it's presented in a narrative format than in a textbook format or like a list format. Um, but um, I think partly what's going on is, because stories are fundamentally about characters. It's, it's really hard to find a story that's not about a character. Um, even if it's not a human, it's, um, if it's say it's an animal or you know a tree or the sun or the moon, um, it's typically anthropomorphized, Anthropom- anthropomorphized. <laughs> um, so anthropomorphic. Um, and so, so characters are fundamentally humans. And so that um, triggers our social psychology. Um, we're a highly social animal. We have adaptations um, that enable us and motivate us to track um, the social environment, to monitor what people in our social world are, are doing, which is you know, why social media is such, you know, so successful. Um, and, um, and so um, stories you know, capture our attention because they're about people. Right. Um, what are those people doing? What are they thinking? What do they want? What are their goals? Um, and so, um, so um, stories have this sort of social framework, um, and then all this other information is um, kind of piled on there. Um, and if you can remember what you know what the characters said, if you remember the basic storyline, oh yeah, there was this person and they did this and this happened. Blah, 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 um, then that's a way of retrieving the other information that's um, attached to the story, like, oh, where the buffalo are, or, um, you know, how to predict when, you know, a snowstorm is coming, or whatever it is. Yeah.
0: Right. So, so stories are um, clearly, like you said earlier, it takes two to tell a story. So it's a deeply social uh, mechanism that we've been using for a long time. Uh, and that kind of plays into the next question I, I really want to ask you is, the social intelligence hypothesis, right? And and you know, there's a, a bunch of different confluence of factors that led to our our evolution and our brain size, but you know, social intelligence is a, a primary one of them. So, uh, what is that, and what role did it play in our development?
1: Um, so there are um, two. Uh, so so I guess to back up. Um, so humans, uh, the human brain, or hominid. Hominin brain um, has expanded um, radically over the last um, well four three and a half million years, um, and um, and so this is kind of a biological puzzle. Why why did our brain expand um, in size and how 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 did that happen? Um, and so you know, one question is, what was the selection pressure that drove this? And there are two main hypotheses on this. Um, one is the social intelligence hypothesis that um, you mentioned, and the other one, I don't think it really has an official name, but um, it, it, the basic idea is that um, brain expansion was driven by the demands of um, communicating um, knowledge about tool use and, um, and you know, technologies, uh, tactics, strategies that are used to manipulate the environment. Um, in these really complex ways. Um, I think it's both of these things because humans are a highly social animal and we're also um, a very um, technology using animal. And so it seems to me that, and and both of these things demand a lot of processing capacity. And so um, to me, it makes sense that they were driven by both. Also, one of the ways we uh, extract information from the environment and, and apply that information, you know, make creating tactics and and tools is by cooperating with other humans. Um, so, and a lot of the tactics we use involve cooperation. And so, um, eco, the the um, ecological world and the social world are um, deeply intertwined for humans. But, anyways, getting back to the social um, intelligence hypothesis. So, the basic idea here is um, that. Um, human brain expansion was driven by the size of the groups humans live in um, and the number of relationships that they have to track. Um, So Dunbar's the one who came up, Robin Dunbar is the one who came up with this hypothesis. And um, the big test he did of it was a comparison of relative primate brain size. uh, So brain size compared to the size of the groups they live in. And I forget how many species he looked at. I think it was something like 30. And this was, I think, back in the 90s that he did this research, um, maybe the 80s. Um, But anyways, what he found is that there was a correlation between relative brain size. So the size of the animal's brain relative to its body and the size of the groups uh, that that animal lived in. Um, And um, he, um, based on his research, he inferred that humans, for most of their evolution, lived in groups of about 150 people or actually not More accurately, their social network consisted of about 150 people. Um, So they weren't actually living in groups of 150 people, but they would know 150 people. So there might be 30 people in their group, their band, but then they would know people in neighboring bands um, and even maybe people from other tribes. Um, And so they would maintain relationships of about about 150 relationships. It's called Dunbar's number. Um, So, anyways um so what was the rest of your question about the social intelligence hypothesis
0: well i was yeah i was just curious uh the so that's you kind of answered a little bit This the role it played in our development yeah right so as far as as far as being able to uh track all of those different relationships not only between you know me and another person but that person and the other person that i know and then how they relate to each other and all of that basically just led to us having to uh develop a bigger brain capacity to keep track of all of those relationships and I just find that I find that that to me that's a really interesting hypothesis as compared to some of the other ones just because of where we find ourselves today with social media and so it's curious to me as are we are we offloading our capacity to keep track of relationships to technology or is technology uh, and all of the new relationships is, that we have to track with the hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens of thousands of people that we see through media, is that, do you, do you think that that might be contributing to uh, different ways our brain might be developing now, or is it, it or not, essentially?
1: Um, well, I think it's certainly having psychological effects. Um, right. I don't know if um, it, you know evolution of the evolution of complex cognitive capacities takes you know thousands of generations. So I I it can't really say how this is you know affecting us right now um, right. in terms of evolution. Um, but um, but clearly we're not designed to track um, you know probably not designed to track more than 150 or so relationships um, in a really meaningful detailed way. Right. Um, and um, Probably not designed to take in the amount of information that modern media um, make available to us, and um, and you know we've seen you know that social media is having negative effects, um, you know, on mental health. Um, Certainly. And, um, but but paradoxically, you know, part of the the appeal of social media is um, this need to track our social environment because we're a highly cooperative species. We depend on cooperative relationships with others. Um, in order to survive. Um, so in hunter gatherer environments, it was absolutely critical because if you got sick or injured, you wouldn't be able to go out and get food and so you would depend on others to, um, you know, provide you with food and water while you were healing um, and um, and of course um, we we depended on others for you know rearing our children um, very hard to rear a child in a hunter gatherer context um, as a single parent um, so um, so humans have evolved um parenting where lots of people help raise the child you know grandparents aunts and uncles um, older siblings um, and um, and so we really depended on other people for survival, and so that meant we had we had to track how does this person feel about me? Do they want to cooperate with me? Do they like me? Um, and what's their relationship with those other people? Are they more likely to help that other person than me? Um, or um, you know, do their goals conflict with mine? Um, are they forming a political alliance? You know, that could cause me harm, um, and so on and so on. Um, so, um, so social media are a very effective, very efficient way of keeping track of what your, um, you know, what your partners, what your, um, you know, your friends, your family are up to, um, and um, so hence the appeal. But um, the downside, of course, is um, uh, we get bartered with so much information; um, it's hard to process it all and interpret it all, and um, it's somewhat overwhelming. Um, and then also um, you're continually seeing, you know, all the fun, wonderful things other people are doing that you're not doing.
0: Homo, right? <laughs> As people tend
1: to only post the happy things. <laughs> yeah. And so it gives you a false picture of, um, of your, um, your cooperative partners. And, um, and that can have a negative effect on your, on your
0: psychological health. Absolutely. And we're all very familiar with the psychological, the down downside of psychological effects that it can have. Right. And it's mm-hmm. just, uh, it's, it's crazy to think that how fast this all happened and it's evolving, Where right? I mean, the earliest social media was in the mid 2000s, you know, MySpace, things like right, that. Right. And then and then here we are now. And that was 12 years, 13 years later. And we, we've we already seen the ramifications on our economy, on our elections, on our social relationships. And so it's one of those things where, you know, we did it with the best of intentions. But if we've learned anything in this conversation so far, it's our social our social ties are uh, deeply embedded in our psychology and neurobiology to an extent where when they're, they're put into a phone, they, they tug deeply on those, on all of those neurotransmitters to a point where, you know, suicides are up dramatically over the past 10 years in, you know, in an unfortunate stark correlation with social media, you know, so like now we're at a point where, uh, and this is why I find anthropology so incredible it's like okay now we understand the mechanisms behind uh, why we're like this you know and so here we have this incredible technology uh, how do we how do we you know make the two coalesce properly how can we have the best of both worlds and you know maybe we can incorporate Dunbar's number into our you know social media I don't know how you know there's smarter people out there than I that can they can make that happen but you know yeah. what it what about' I would just it, it, it bewilders me. I I would like to think that there's a future where we can take what we know about human beings historically and apply it technologically.
1: Yeah, uh, no, I'm laughing because um, I actually apply Dunbar's number um, in my. I, I'm not on a lot of social media, right? Um, but um, I I am on Facebook because. Um, Years ago, a bunch of my old friends from high school talked me into doing it. I didn't want to go on, but um, but they're like, oh, Michelle, it's so fun. So I did it. Um, so I'm on there, but I limit my number of friends to one hundred and fifty <laughs> <That's laughs> where awesome. most people are trying to get more friends. Right. I'm actually trying to get fewer. friends. <laughs> <laughs> it works um, out, though. And yeah. And I, so far I've succeeded. Um, and I also have a policy. And this is an, an interesting aspect of social media. Um, And I've o- only broken this policy a couple of times, but I only become friends or accept friend requests from people that I've met in person.
0: It's mm, um, a good rule. And, um,
1: and and that's because we are evolved to deal with people face to face, right? And social media takes that away. And I think that's part of the problem is that people feel very comfortable, you know, trolling people and you know saying all these hostile um things because there's no there's very little consequence um to it. Whereas if you did that face to face, um, you know, you insulted someone, you were, you disrespected someone to their face, um, there might be very physical consequences to very that. Very true. Point. And um and so I'm always, you know, I'm very cautious about that, um, about what I say on social media. Um so um so I yeah I don't have the answers um other than yeah. other than my uh I mean, 150
0: friends, well, we're all, we're all figuring it out as we go along, you know, and it, and it, and it, it worries me and it excites me because I grew up with this technology, you know, like as I came of age, you know, 13, 14 Instagram came out. So I hopped on, but I didn't know everything that I was saying was going to be there forever you know, so it's just, but that's me and the millions of other people in my generation there before me and after me that were just engaging with this because, you know, it's novel and humans love novelty. So why would we, why would we not engage with it? Uh, But I think that's a really great rule of thumb, you know, I mean, obviously there's certain things you can't do where I, you know, you can make your account private where uh, you, you can only accept people that, you know you want to accept or if it's a public account anybody could look at you and follow you you know and that's okay but the, it's a good rule of thumb to be you know to only engage with social media when people you know people and it makes it more personal right mm-hmm. and, I, and I love that you just engage with it consciously because that's what I was talking about on the previous podcast with uh, my good friend Reese right is when is you, you wouldn't a lot of the problems we have today feel like will be mitigated if we engage with our media consciously you know like this this internet is really just a reflection of all of us and all of our thoughts but but that being said that includes all these negative aspects you know so me typing in all caps and like how much i hate this one person really isn't contributing positively to anything but you know to take that to take that away you know, we run into more ethical dilemma, right? Like, well, we can't just limit people's ability to express themselves to that extreme. So we just got to, we got to hope, you know, we got to put out the message at least that, uh, you know, do this properly and we'll all be better because of it.
1: Right.
0: Uh, okay, that being said, there was a few different things you, you tapped into uh, uh, recently. And one of them was, you know, the abundance of tech, the, the 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 tech that we have now and the abundance of information that that's created. Uh, but before we get into that, I really wanted to touch on uh, an article that you wrote in 2015 for the Huffington Post about campfires, right? And how uh, okay. campfires were, um, you know, a, a, a unique technology that we used to share information, right? More so than uh, more so than others, which is really interesting. So, uh, if you could tell me tell me about. Uh, campfires and, and what made them a a place to share stories?
1: Uh, well, this was inspired by um, Polly Wiesner's research, um, which she did with the San back in the um, 70s and 80s. And um, she just, she had tons of data. And um, among the data she'd collected was, um, what, do pe- what do people talk about during the daytime versus what do they talk about in the nighttime? Um, and uh, she finally wrote it up in like 2014 and um and so i saw the article and that inspired my my blog post um but um the ability to control fire was huge in human evolution um it's one of the most important technologies and probably one of the earliest technologies and one of the things it did is it it opened up the nighttime whereas before um you know, we would have to hunker down um, during the night, you know, because we're vulnerable to predation. Um, But um, once we had fire, one thing that does is it discourages predators, right? Most animals are afraid of fire, um, so you're less likely to be attacked. It gives you light, so you can um, you can do things. You um, Can't do a lot, uh, but you can mend tools or even you know make tools, things like that. Um, and it provides warmth, so you can you don't have to you know cuddle up with everybody in the group. You know, in your little sleepy nest, you can actually sit around and socialize, and you know sing and um, and um, so it extended the day. The sort of um, working daytime hours. Um, and uh, but like I said, there's light, but you can't do a whole lot by that light. And it's limited. And so what it really lends itself to is talking, um, socializing. And so what Wiesner found is that um during the daytime people are gossiping and they're just talking about more practical matters like, you know, where are you going to go gathering or you know, have you seen any you know and game animals lately? Uh, where are you thinking about going hunting? Um, Uh, nighttime conversation, I think it was 84% was dedicated to storytelling, uh, myths, and, and also, you know, personal experience narratives. So true stories, you'll never guess what happened to me, you know, or you'll never believe what I saw. Um, Yeah, so so there's a real difference in what people are talking about in the daytime versus the nighttime. And so um, fire opened up this opportunity um, for more information exchange. Um, uh, People, you know, are inclined to you know, talk, right? So uh, so they sit around talking and um, that, that conversation um, and the storytelling provides information that um, people otherwise might not have acquired. Um, and it's interesting because fire itself is used for communication. Um, so I, I told you it was a hugely important technology, has all sorts of applications and uses, but one of the things hunter-gatherers use it for is um, signaling, um, smoke signaling. Right. Um, right, yeah.
0: really, yeah, that's yes, another
1: way humans communicate.
0: Yeah. So yeah, we 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 have no shortage of the ways we communicate, don't we? Yeah. We're pretty crafty yeah. when it comes to that. Well, so that's that's pretty incredible because uh, it's it's kind of like uh, the feedback loop that I mentioned in in the podcast Media Mania, right? Whereas we have the ability to exche- when we have the ability to exchange more information, it leads to our ability to obtain more information. Right And then that just builds on itself, and then again, that just contributes more so to the evolutions that we've been talking about in, in human social groups and, and co- cognitive capacities. So uh, that being said, I, I kind of want to use that as a segue into um, you know, what are the odds that podcasts in some way are the new campfires?
1: <laughs> Could be. I don't know what the listening patterns are if people tend to listen to them at night, I do. Right. Um, it's part of my, you know, evening, whatever, relaxing and, you know, entertainment. Um, and I don't know how many of them are storytelling based, um, uh, but that would be an interesting, uh, research project to look yeah. at,
0: right. Cause I just, in, in my experience, I found that, uh, in this medium, people tend to be uh, more open and vulnerable and, and sharing, you know, and, and, and willing to share their personal experiences in a way that, uh, you know, older mainstream Ways of doing so wouldn't allow for, you know, whether that was uh, radio or radio is honestly probably uh, the, the the most similar thing we have to podcasts until it became, mm-hmm. but you know, until it became kind of centralized and more difficult to get licenses and the technology to do so, but way more so than uh, television and in some of the some of these other mediums. Um, so so that being said, it's it's really it's really led to this information abundance. So uh with more people having access to tell their story, uh, we now have um, a different pressure, I feel like, a different adaptive pressure, whereas uh, in the past, we were, you know, if we lived in a small group, we were open to anybody's uh, ability to share information that might make our life easier, right because uh, the more you have, the easier it is going to be for you to get through this life. That being said, we face it feels like we face the opposite problem now where we have too much information. so now we kind of have to select we have to select for uh, what what's important out of all of that. We have, if that if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, though no, that's hugely uh, difficult um, because yeah, yeah, we're just overwhelmed with information and um, and you know there's just not enough time to um take it all in so you have to decide and um and that's hard i mean you can sort of follow your interests like i listen to a lot of history podcasts cuz i'm a total history nerd but um but um but yeah it's 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 frustrating too because um you know you'd like to listen to you know lots of different things but there's just not enough time in the day or in a lifetime um so um yeah i don't uh, i don't know what to uh, to yeah. say about that is follow your interests i guess follow yeah. this
0: well, um, and in hope that you can engage with uh you know the algorithms, right? like which with whatever platform you do in a yeah. way that would provide you with with the good information. Because we're, I mean, I'm sure you're you and I are all too familiar with how you can get caught in the echo chambers of of thought and we can fall prey to the biases that have been encoded into our being for the past you know millennia that benefited us in the past, but now do the opposite to us today, you know, our negativity bias. So when we engage with this media negatively, Uh, Because we want to see, oh, you know, that car crash that happened. Well, that's, you know, that's not necessarily beneficial, but it plays into our natural instincts. Um, uh, That being said, uh, I, again, on the idea of podcasts, you know, and especially what you were talking about, about how, you know, oral tradition is the oldest tradition that we have in exchange information. So it's almost as though uh, it's like, an, in my opinion, a, a Gutenberg press revolution, again, except in this time in the form of podcasting. So whereas, you know, everybody had to get, get on the bandwagon of learning how to be literate and learn how to read. And uh, we saw the implications of that, you know, the scientific revolution and technology and all these incredible things happen from the... Uh, amount of books that we were able to print at that time, I'm, we don't know what the implications are going to be with podcasts, but, you know, until, you know, however many decades or centuries down the line, but I, I feel that uh, we're, we're in a podcast revolution or, or in an, or in a, an oral ste- storytelling revolution again, because it's way, it's easier for people to absorb this information audibly than it would be to sit down and read the book.
1: Right. Um, yeah, no, I think podcasts are the the new radio um, and I'm a huge radio fan. Um, and I think it taps into that, you know, sitting around the fire at night, listening to people talk. Um, it's very soothing. When I was a child, I loved to um, hear grownups talking um, as I was drifting off to sleep at night. Um, like when we would go camping, um, they would put us kids to bed and then the grownups would sit around the fire talking. And, um, and it's just, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful way to drift off to sleep. Um, and, um, you know, and that would have been part of our experience, you know, for 10s of 1000s of years, um, right. little kids, and, and that's, yeah, little kids are so. a lot of the, the stories that hunter gatherers tell are um, they're not necessarily for children. They're for everybody, for, for all age levels. And they talk about, they address adult themes. But the little kids are sitting there, you know, hearing them. They don't hide them from children. Um, and, um, but, you know, they'll drift off to sleep during the story. Um, and so, and I think podcasts are the same way. It's, you know, it's people talking, right? And uh, it's very soothing, it's very um, alluring um it's the way we're used to gathering information it would have been oral you know for most of our existence as a species um as opposed to you know obviously there was no film um and um and so I think podcasts radio and podcasts just sort of tap into this um this um you know this proclivity to um to listen (laughs) we like to listen um and um yeah. And I, I treat podcasts kind of like I treat radio, you know, there were certain shows that I would listen to like on NPR and, um, and that's kind of how I am now with podcasts. There's like, and that, you know, I tend to gravitate towards history and science, which is, you know, typically what you hear on NPR. Um, and um, so, uh, but, but I don't know, you know, what other people are doing. And I don't, I mean, I'm sure there's some crazy podcasts out there that are totally
0: you
1: know, <laughs> that are <laughs> trustworthy, but um but I don't, I don't listen to those. So I don't know.
0: It's a, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful medium for communicating information quickly as well, you know, versus, I mean, versus some of the more um, immersive media like video and and movies, like those are the most effective way to transmit the most information possible. But as far as getting um, a, a great deal amount of it, a great amount of it across podcasts are great because of our ability, you know, orally that being said, uh, you know, it's just it's just another step in the evolution of how we transmit information, right? Because I'm sure uh, if you're familiar with it, uh, you know Elon Musk's project with Neuralink, where he's talked about in the past how. Uh, whether it's texting or podcasting, you know, that's not quick enough. It's like, wait a minute, how is that not quick enough? Like, what's the next step in this, in, in this evolution? We're gonna start downloading things into our, into our mind through, through chips that are connected to the internet. Like, man, that's a little wild for me.
1: Yeah, that's, that's I think problematic given the design of our, our psychology uh, because we're not designed to uh, input and respond to information that quickly.
0: Mm. Um,
1: and um, you know, we, we need time for reflection. And that's, that's the problem with this, you know, instantaneous um, technology. Um, there's no room for reflection and thinking, you know, processing and thinking and, um, you know, taking inf- information from different sources and figuring out, you know, which, where the truth is. Um, and uh, so there's something to be said for slow. <laughs> yeah,
0: that's a um,
1: great point. Slow down. Um, and we're developing these technologies without thinking through the possible negative consequences. Um, again, reflection.
0: Right? Yeah, reflection yeah. allows for integration. That's yeah. that's what's kind of what I get out of that. And it's that really reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Jurassic Park, right? Where it's like you were so obsessed with the fact that you could, you didn't stop to think if you should.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Um, okay. So so all that. All that being said, we've gotten we've gone through a lot of uh, a lot of what I wanted to talk talk about just through some of the other topics we were um, discussing about how information abundance affects us today. What are some of the adaptive pressures we might be facing right now uh, is technology evolving faster than we are, you know, and I think that's yeah, I think that that's a truth right there. And so uh,
1: that's the problem. I mean, that's. What the downside of our ability to manipulate the environment in very complex ways to invent solutions to problems as they arise, um, whereas you know other animals can't do that, where right? they just they have to work with what they're born with: their claws, their speed, their camouflage, whatever it is. Um, but we can make these um, you know really rapid changes, and um, and 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 the change happens faster than we can you know cope with it.
0: Right. Right. Uh, and
1: then, evolution happens very slowly. We're, we're able to change the world faster than evolution changes the world um, and uh, much faster. I mean, exponentially faster. And um, so we're having to deal with changes, um, really lots of change and really rapid change um, in modern environments that we didn't have to deal with in the environments in which we evolved, right, where change was slower.
0: And evolution's really good at what it does, <laughs> you, know, you know, and and I feel human beings are uh, infinitely fallible. So it worries me to, to that extent. Right. Because right. it's just that kind of comes back to this idea that um, I brought up. We, we brought up in, in a previous conversation of the idea of transhumanism. Right. Where human beings now think that. Uh, we're smarter than evolution in nature to the extent that we can take our evolution into our own hands, and that kind of comes back to the idea of Neuralink, you know, and uh, and and CRISPR. just yeah, a CRISPR, right? You know, gene therapy, um, mm-hmm. and being able to transcend our our human body. You know, we don't need this thing anymore. We got to feed it organic material and, and, and all this stuff. It's like, well, wait a minute. Like, why why don't we just we have this this incredible ability to mold our environment so. I would hope that, um, again, knowing what we know about human history and, and human biology from an anthropological perspective, like we would be able to make our modern environment suit that properly with the technology, uh, that we have today, but not, you know, not go haywire with it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I would hope. Um, yeah. That's the problem, isn't it? Um, okay. In a nutshell.
0: Yeah. And yeah. the, uh, Okay, so kind of rewinding here uh, a little bit back to the information abundance and, uh, you know, the myths that we told over the millennia to get us to this point, you know, living in a small band, it's much easier to tell a collective myth that brings everybody together, you know, this is what happened uh, in the past, and this is why we're here, and this is where we're going after death and all that. Um, But as we've all gotten more access to media to express ourselves, all of those myths that brought us together have just disintegrated, right? Whether that was um, religion or spirituality or, uh, you know, origin stories, whatever it was, um, in our own isolated groups across the planet, we had myths that brought us together. But as we've become more interconnected and we've had more ways to express ourselves, all of that's fallen apart. And so the question uh, I have for you is, you know, what miss could we tell today that might bring us together? And, you know, is anthropology one of them? Um,
1: well, I, I think, um, yeah, so I think you, you nailed it, you know, hit the nail on the head that um, this explosion in media um, has had the paradoxical effect of polarizing us, of, of compartmentalizing, right? There's, we, we've broken down into all these different interest groups. And, uh, and I think it actually started with cable television um, mm-hmm. when there was this explosion of different TV, you know, niche TV channels, right? For, you know, there's the, you know, for the channel for people who like flowers and the channel for people who like basketball and you know what I mean? It's just, it's very specialized. And so that breaks us up into these little groups um, instead of um, us all, you know, learning the same information and the same stories where, um, we're, uh, we're polarized, right. Um, and compartmentalized. And, um, I don't know, I mean, with 8 billion people on the planet, I don't know if there is, you know, something that can unite us. Um, but, um, but I think that, um, one, one of the, one way that anthropology, um, particularly the study of hunter-gatherers could help us is, um, by there's a very common, um, worldview across hunter-gatherer societies. Um, they tend to, and, you know, not to essentialize, but, um, but they tend to look at the, the world, the environment differently than, um, we do in modern industrialized societies. Um, they, first of all, they don't, look at it and say, oh, we're gonna change this. They see it as being pretty good the way it is. Um, and, um, you know, there's all these resources out there um, that have been provided for us, right? And it's just, it's our place to manage them, right? To not destroy them. Um, and um, and the idea isn't to get more, um, to get lots of stuff. Um, it's to be, uh, to use just what you need, uh, be happy, you know, be grateful for what you have. Um, and um, so I think um, you know that's a useful lesson we could learn, um, you know, through anthropology, um, is this um, hunter gatherer view of of the environment, um, and um, so. But I don't know, you know, if you can sell that to eight billion people. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, um, yeah,
0: it's. Yeah. That's, I, I like that, though, right, where it, instead of looking as at the environment as something to exploit for more material gain, we can look at it, it's like, wait a minute, why don't we adapt ourselves to to it more and flow with it, right? Because nature has an incredible flow with energy and, uh, and matter in a way that we can't replicate, you know, that we're, we want to replicate, but we have a really difficult time doing so. Right. Right. So, I mean, that comes back to the idea of technology again, right? Like technology is not all bad, as much as bad as it has made us today. You know, maybe we can use some of these, you know, super intelligent AI to, you know, potentially, uh, you know, manipulate our environment to better flow with nature. Um, Michelle, you're, you're incredible. You're brilliant. You're well-educated. And I, I've, I've loved talking to you. What, uh, where, are, are there any resources that you might have made or places uh, people can go to check out any more of your work?
1: Yeah, so I have this um, website. It's an um, open educational resource called Talking Stories. Um, it's an encyclopedia of traditional ecological knowledge. And um, like I said, it's it's open access. It's you know, it's a website anybody in the world with a, a device and uh, an internet connection can access it. Um, and that's the idea is to um, to make that's um, hunter-gatherer um, ecological knowledge and um, and worldview um, available to the whole world, um, and um, to uh, t- to enable um, educators and researchers to access this knowledge. Um, so for educators, um, the the site provides uh, links to resources, you know, articles, books. Uh, films um, that they could incorporate into their courses, um, whether it's a literature course, an environmental studies class, a world geography class, a biology class. Um, So the basic idea behind the website is, as I said, it's an encyclopedia of traditional ecological knowledge. And um, each entry in the encyclopedia is a hunter-gatherer story. um, And I have stories from lots of different cultures. um, And the entry um, features the story and then um, a, an explication of the ecological knowledge that's encoded in the story, and then um, it also features a brief ethnographic sketch of the culture that the story comes from and uh, the place where they lived um, to show how the ecological knowledge was used um, in their in their society um, and in their environment. Um, and so the the site basically um, shows how art and science are related. How um, in hunter-gatherer societies, stories and other forms of symbolic behavior were used to encode traditional ecological knowledge. As I was saying earlier, this is you know is one of the earliest information technologies. So these were oral cultures. They had to store their knowledge somewhere. Uh, their knowledge about you know how to make a living, um, and so it was encoded in stories, in rituals, in song, um, in art, um, and um, and of course these activities. Are performed periodically, right? Stories are retold, rituals are performed, you know, maybe every year. Um, songs are sung periodically, and so this um, these different forms of symbolic behavior um, enabled people to refresh this knowledge periodically, right? Um, so it's kind of like a refresher course. Um, so um, so some people in the audience would be learning it for the first time. Other for other people in the audience, it would be a refresher. Um, and so, that's what the site looks at. Um, is, um, it just shows the deep understanding of, um, of the environment that hunter-gatherers had to have, um, and um, it, um, it shows their um, just incredibly profound understanding of ecological relationships um, and natural history, um, and shows how this knowledge was transmitted through storytelling um, and and other things like games. Games were really important um, in hunter gatherer societies for learning skills, particularly physical skills um, and developing stamina, and um, you know the things that you need to make a living by hunting and gathering. Um, so um, so yeah, if, if people are interested, um, they can check it out. It's called Talking Stories. Um,
0: Incredible. What? So, um, there's a couple. I have a couple more questions before we before we round this out. Uh, you know, one of them you kind of tapped on it a little bit right there. But with creating a resource like that and just all of the you know work you've done over your career, what what impact do you hope that a lot of that has um, on the people that get to view, have the um, blessing to view all of that?
1: Well, two things. Um, I I want to raise awareness of um, this um, this treasure trove of ecological knowledge um, that hunter gatherer peoples uh, around the globe have, um, and um, so that people in Western industrialized societies can incorporate that knowledge into their courses, uh, because it's been, you know, sadly overlooked, um, kind of dismissed, uh, but over the past, I don't know, 20 or 30 years, um, um, People have started studying ethnobiology, ethnoastronomy, um, and um, they're starting to appreciate um, the incredible understanding of the environment that hunter gatherer peoples have. And so I think it's really important to make people aware of this and to incorporate it into our teaching in, in Western industrialized societies. Um, and then um, the other thing is, and, and also just to acknowledge the debt, you know, and and, and also the stories too, that, that um, there there's. As I said, I, you know, in grad school, I was in a literature program. I never learned about, um, you know, oral storytelling or you know, hunter gatherer stories when I was in that program. It was when I uh, started studying anthropology that I learned um, that early anthropologists had collected these stories. So, um, so in literary study, we're not taught literary prehistory. Uh, we don't learn what came before, mm-hmm. um, you know, the Epic of Gilgamesh and you know, the earliest written texts. And and literature began as an oral medium. And um, and we're just not taught that, um, so I think it's really important to acknowledge that and to study um, oral literature, um, and then also to um, hopefully um, you know introduce um, you know Western industrialized peoples to this different uh, view of the environment. Um, it's it's um, in contrast to um, industrialized economies, which are a growth based model. Um, make more stuff, um, grow your company, right? Uh, sell more stuff, more, more, more. Um, it's a very different view of of um, our planet um, and the resources. Um, our finite resources, um, which is you use them efficiently, um, you don't take more than you need, um, and um, and you know maybe in some small way that will that will trickle down, and um, and change people's views.
0: I believe it will. I believe it will. And I, I think I, there's so well said on so many points on on all of that. And I think we definitely owe um, a debt to ourselves and to our species, you know, to understand where it is that this all came from, you know, instead of just eyes forward all the time, you know, so we get back into these loops of like we talked about social media and how bad that ended up being and how bad it could be you know maybe if we reflect a little bit on where we came from and how we use all that properly it'll give us a better perspective for going forward okay Great. my my last question michelle is is what uh pieces of information do you want to arm listeners with if you had any you know potential advice to arm listeners with what would it be
1: oh wow that's a big one yeah <laughs> Well, actually, I, th- I think what I would suggest is a thought experiment um to just sort of get across um how dependent we are on nature, on you know the, the this the resources uh, that this planet um, contains. Um, this is an experiment um, that I can't a physical ex- I couldn't do this as a physical experiment because it would be unethical. Um, but um, but imagine that you're plunked down in the middle of the wilderness, you know, the Arctic, the, the Amazon, wherever it is, with nothing but the clothes on your back. Um, and if you have your phone, it doesn't matter because, you know, there's no connection, so it's useless. Um, and, um, and so you're, you're days or weeks away from civilization. So even if you manage to get out, you have to survive for, you know, several weeks as you're doing that, right? Okay, so what are the problems you're going to encounter? Okay, well, first of all, you need to keep warm right? You need to avoid freezing to death or, you know, hypothermia. Even in the Amazon, it gets cold enough for people to die of hypothermia. Um, So you need to know how to make fire. Do you you know how to make fire? (laughs) Um, You need to be able to make a shelter. You need to be be able to find food. You need to know what's edible, where it is, when, at what time of year it's available. Um, you need to know, um, you know, how to predict the weather, right? How to know when bad weather is coming, when, if it's going to flood, um, if you're going to get caught in a blizzard, depending on, you know, what environment you're in. Um, so there's a huge amount of knowledge that it takes um, to make a living, you know, off the land. And, but ultimately that is, you know, how we make our living, right? We're tied to that. And just to think in those really basic terms, I think, um, puts the finite nature of our planet in in very, you know, vivid, visceral perspective. It's, you know, these resources can run out. um, and, um, And these resources are what stand between us and, you know, us staying alive and us dying, right? Yeah. Um, and so, um, I know it's, it's kind of gloomy, but, <laughs> but that's what I would, um, uh, what I would, you know, encourage people to reflect upon.
0: Gloomy or not, we need the perspective. We need the perspective yeah. on what we don't know about how to survive without technology and our over-reliance on technology. And I think, I think that thought experiment is a great thing because, you know, most people will have, uh, so, you know, a, a piece of advice, but that, you know, that enforces people to think. So I really like that one. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. This has been amazing.
1: Oh, thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: Of course, of course. I'm looking forward to the next one, whenever that might be.